Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCPod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. As a D2C brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, FinalLoop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try FinalLoop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finalloop.com slash D2C pod and get 14 days free and a two-month P&L within 24 hours with all the e-com data and breakdowns you need to crush it. What's up, DTC Pod? Today, we're joined by Adam Robinson, who is the founder and CEO of Retention.com. So Adam, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you guys are all about at Retention.com? So um, I will give, I'll give the three-minute bio. I graduated, I'm 42 years old. I graduated school from Rice University in 2003. I went to New York. I was a credit default swap trader at Lehman Brothers. My roommates in my apartment started Vimeo, the video sharing website. So I watched that happen as I was a trader for 10 years. We were both kind of like killing it in different ways. What they were doing seemed much more interesting. And the financial crisis happened, like this job I had, they literally made a movie out of, it's called The Big Short. Like it was a very interesting place to be at the time. And But afterwards it was kind of like, you know, it was a shrinking market. I like really wanted to do what these other guys had done tried to get into tech. Somehow I found my way into the email marketing SaaS world. And I created a company. It was called Robly Email Marketing. It was a newsletter app. And we were basically, we were like sweeping breadcrumbs off of the constant contact sort of, that's who we were positioning ourselves against. Um, and it worked well to the extent that it was a decent lifestyle business, but like that space was incredibly difficult to operate in. There was this MailChimp behemoth that had a free product that had an unbelievable brand and were bidding up all the channels. Like it's amazing that Clavio, after the game appeared to have been won, came and did what they did. I mean, they got a couple breaks along the way, but like unbelievable with with how dominant. Typically it's like above 60% of a market in like, that's that was the shape of it. It was like MailChimp was everything. There was like constant contact. It was like the pioneer, but they got crushed by MailChimp. And then there were like 150 vendors with 2 million in revenue, right? So. It's like selling cola, like very commoditized, very mature, or whatever. So I was trying to figure out how to grow a company in this space. Watching people niche down and have success, like, you know, ConvertKit or Klaviyo or something like that. Um, and I just couldn't come up. Everything I tried didn't work. And um, I heard of this identity product, meaning you could, it, when someone hit a website, without them filling out a form, you could get an email address of that person. I immediately thought, how is that possible? If I could do that, I could sell that to anybody with a website. No fucking question. I've been in the email market for five years. This is the biggest problem in email, right? Um, of course, the ethics of it are debatable. I, the, the compliance landscape is completely 
misunderstood. Um, but I was like, screw it. I got nothing else going on. I'm going to try it. At the time, it was entirely a third-party cookie solution. I thought third-party cookies were going to expire 18 months later because that's what people were saying in 2019. But I was like, I'll just try this. You know, whatever. Make a couple million bucks and be on to the next thing. Um, turns out it's not illegal. <laughs> third-party cookies have not been sunset yet, and we can do the identity without them. So, and you know, two and a half years later, we honed in on uh, large, basically large Shopify stores, the direct, the direct consumer side of them being this perfect customer for this product. And then in addition to just having a top of the funnel tool where someone hit the website, left, and we give the Klaviyo account an email address, we also built out a whole suite of bottom of the funnel products because there's this major problem where in order to receive an email flow, the user has to be logged into the merchant store, which is a fucking terrible problem. Like, there, on Chrome, it's hard enough. On Safari, it's impossible. Yeah, on, on, exactly. Like, you're logged into Amazon, you're logged into Facebook, you're not logged into, like, you know, feet.com for, like, socks or whatever, right? Like, love Taylor Offer, but, like, no one's logged into his fucking store. Like, let's be honest. So, um, with Chrome, it's difficult. Maybe you get a purchase and then the cookie lasts for whatever, 30, 60, 90 days, maybe a little longer. With Safari, it's nearly impossible because those cookies expire in seven days. So, yeah, we can expand these abandoned cart audiences and product and checkout and category and like whatever else, price drop back in stock if you want it, by like a lot, like, and it works and it's it's incredible. So um, the, the company was called Get Emails, which really makes sense when it's a self-serve product that you're selling to anyone and all it does is get you emails of people on your website. Great name. Once we were like, we noticed sometime in the middle of last year, it's like, wow, like these big Shopify stores like Blendjet, Drift, Kitsch, Blissy, like not only are they consuming massive amounts of this data and really making it work, they're literally sending us like four or five brands each per month and not even asking for commission or anything. Like, no, they're not churning. Like, they literally can't stop talking about this. So then, like we did this bottom of the funnel stuff, it worked better than any product I've ever seen. Like in terms of just immediate lift, it's like you turn it on and someone's abandoned cart revenue goes up by like two or three X. It's unbelievable. So I was like, oh, like we should only focus on these big Shopify stores. There's a nice Shopify plus market. We can go after them. Get emails doesn't really make sense anymore. We had a ton of free cash at the time because we hadn't hired anyone. We still had we had like six people and we're doing 12 million ARR. Uh, so I went out and bought retention.com, the domain for 800 grand last August. Just fucking, <laughs> you know, whipped it out. Uh, and now, you know, we're trying to scale as hard as possible in dealing with the challenges of doing that. So like, you know, I, I'm doing a build in public on LinkedIn. We're at like 20 just shy of 20 million ARR now, we have 50 employees, like, you know, we probably hired a little too fast, like, you know, everything's messy, but we're slowly improving the focus and what we're spending time on, the visibility through RevOps is getting better. You know, I'm sure anyone who's gotten to this point, they're nodding their head, it's like, yeah, like, you went too fast, but like, you'll figure it out. So that's where we're at. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I'd love to dive in a little bit into um, the actual space you're in. So once you're, you're able to get the emails like what is like 
you know, because there's all this talk about, like you're saying, cookies and privacy and what's okay and what's not okay. So if you're able to obtain the email, what are you allowed to do with it? In the U.S., which is the only place our product will work for your U.S. traffic, you could be a Canadian or a European company and use it for your U.S. traffic because these laws are based on the geography of the activity on the internet. Um, so if you're in the U.S., you are allowed to email these people. Why? Because the CanSpam law of 2003 is opt-out, not opt-in. That is not debatable. That is a fact. Warby Parker, Dr. Squatch, True Classic Tees, Blendjet, you know, Penske Media, like Tonal, uh, Bulletproof Coffee, all of them have in-house counsel, and they are currently our customers. This is not illegal, <laughs> right? Like, uh, why does everyone not spam everyone all the time is the next question. Because if you did, Gmail would not take you, accept your emails anymore. Yahoo would not accept your emails anymore. Email is a game. It's not about first-party opt-ins. It's about, it's about engagement. It's about high positive engagement and low negative engagement. So we have like reverse engineered email in a way to where it's the perfect non-opt-in email. And by the way, we have opt-ins through our, we have implied consent into our identity graph. So if someone complains, we give the customer opt-in date and URL and the complainer goes away. That's just how it works. So it's like, this is like news to a lot of people. Most, do, most are not aware that that is the actual law. And most are not aware that this is a strategy that, that sort of can work, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things that are really interesting here. One is, um, like you were saying, the ability that brands are actually able to do this, right? Um, I think that's, that's really, um, really important to know. And the other thing is that, like you were saying, it's opt out instead of opt in. So, what you're basically saying is that the goal, if you're sending an email, you can send an email to anyone you'd like, but if they're, if they're saying, mark this as spam, and they're saying, you know, unsubscribe and all that, then that's sending a bad signal to Gmail, and then your deliverability for your domain is going to get wrecked. So then part of the job is figuring out, okay, I've got this email. How do I send an email where I'm able to like build trust and I'm not just spamming these people because that's no good for everyone, but I am as a brand allowed to send them an email. You are allowed to, yes. So like, by the way, we, we could give people 80% of their traffic to a plain text email. We end up on average giving somewhere between 15 and 17%. We throw out everybody else because they're not perfect enough. Like that's how high the bar is for a deliverable email. Like we're buying signal from all over the place. And like, if they meet this 10 different criteria based on all the signal we're buying, we'll give them the record. Like they, they must be openers and clickers in the past seven days, plus a bunch of other stuff to actually have it hit the brand account. So so you're basically saying like, you're not gonna pass over every single email. If no, you know this is a type of person, if, like yeah, so, yeah, so if this is a type of person who maybe hit their page, but we know that they unsubscribe and they mark everything else as spam, exactly. those emails aren't getting passed. But if they're exactly. a good email and we know they're open to it, then we're gonna pass those emails exactly. and the brand can try to win that relationship. Yeah. So, so you, um, so you said I have to own the entire stack, basically. And is that when, um, when retention.com went from six people to saying, let's just go all out? First of all, having 
six people and like 14 million in revenue is absolutely wild. So what clicked? It was the best. It was so great. Now I'm looking at this now and I'm like, what am I fucking doing? Yeah. Like, because if I just would have gone one more year of that, like, I don't know, I probably would have made like $8 million of cash. Yeah. I don't know what that feels like. Yeah. Probably great. So, so you mentioned, um, you mentioned this quote that you said you bang your head against the wall for 10 years and then all of a sudden it's way more success than you ever thought possible all at once. Is that the moment that you said we're going big? Yeah. So like, you know what it was? And I wonder if I can share my screen. I don't even have these anymore. So like, I mentioned that we figured out that Shopify guys were like our best guy. And then we literally were like tracking performance of the abandoned cart flow audience expansion in a spreadsheet for Blendjet, Blissey, and Kish, three brands. What did you mean by performance with those? So like, so like the old abandoned cart flow and then literally the incremental from our audience that we're giving to Ryan, right? And I had these snapshots of these spreadsheets and like, like, and it was, you know, it was, it was October or whatever, maybe November. It was like around a holiday season. So it was like the volumes were way escalated for everybody, but like, it was crazy. It was like, this thing was like, I was like, dude, like it takes an hour to set this up. And like, this guy's got $170,000 of incremental, you know him, you can ask, and he's paying us 5k a month. And like, I'd get off the phone with people and they'd send like seven intros, like on the wire. Cause I'm also like, by the way, like I think people buy this way in the Shopify ecosystem, like I'll pay you 20% for life on any of these closes. Like we have this great affiliate program. Um, and it was like overwhelming, like the amount of, if you want to call that inbound, like the amount of like, you know, inbound interest in this, which was just really different from like the prior, we always had some decent inbound but like once I was able to show people that it was like it got incredible product market fit on the affiliate channel like with anyone who knew brands because they could just I'd be like dude if you make me an intro it's like a 30k ACV it's a seven-day sales cycle and an 80% close rate like I can show you Salesforce anybody that like who's trusted by brands right just show them these spreadsheets and they'll show up at the door and they will buy so like it just opened this incredible, you know, spigot or whatever. And then like, yeah, we like, you know, decided to, we thought that the market was big enough to create like a unicorn type. I mean, I know that it is because like Clavio Yapo, you know, sort of uh, attentive, you know, there's a handful of Shopify type unicorns. This reminds me of uh, the attentive days when they were just going gangbusters, racing round after round and and getting the market share. Um, it seems though there wasn't much novelty um, and it was sort of a race to, to being first. Do you see some of the same here um, or, you know, there's a little bit more like behind the scenes going on? So, so that's a really interesting thing that's going so this space the 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 blessing and the curse is the total misunderstanding of this compliance landscape the blessing is that no entrepreneur worth their weight in salt is going to enter this space 
VCs are too lazy to actually learn. And even if they really believed it, if something, if like, you know, there's like a, a couple percent chance that something really out of left field happens on the compliance landscape and we're fucked, whatever. That's kind of always the case, I feel like, with these early stage startups. Like something can happen that just levels you, that like you just were totally, you know, totally not expecting. I paid a lot of privacy attorneys a lot of money, like 98% sure that we are fine for 10 years, right? Um, almost no one else believes that. You hear about the product and you're like, this is illegal. If it's not, it's going to be very soon. It doesn't matter how smart you are. And people are very convicted in that, but they have done no work. So like, this is a beautiful environment to operate in because it keeps competitors out. Now, I'm a jackass. I'm fucking sharing my financials on LinkedIn and everything. So now like, I got competitors popping up. Like there's this guy, Growbot or something, who like literally has taken my exact first marketing video for this product and like using all of my copies, whatever. Like I take other people's copy too who we're emulating. I appreciate the flattery, um, but I would be surprised if you were able to raise real venture rounds just because of the, it's gonna make it hard for me to sell this business at some point, I think, unless we're very different than we are now because you really need someone who understands and is who appreciates this dynamic that like, in exchange for this data privacy risk you are taking, you are getting unbelievable unit economics. That's the trade you're doing, right? So I didn't have a legit, you know, toe-to-toe -to -toe competitor until we were 20 million ARR. Now we're spending a million dollars in sales and marketing. Our product's moving incredibly fast. He's trying to undercut. Like, I don't know, that's generally not, it's like we're gonna do, next year we're gonna do 200 dinners. That's how people buy in Shopify also. Is he gonna be able to like, you know, give people free trials instead of 60 day paid trials and like undercut by 50% and like make a dent? Like, I don't know. I would bet that we'll probably continue growing at a higher growth rate off higher numbers, but I'm gonna stay humble and hungry and appreciate the fact that we have competitor. So that's sort of like the nature of our space right now. I would be very scared if somebody came in and raised a hundred million dollars mm -hmm. after us. Uh, it would probably make me change my tune about doing primary. I'd be really fucking annoyed. So you you ended up raising, right? No. No? Bootstrapped. I see. Yeah. So what? I'm contemplating doing some type of secondary at some point. Like, the business has to be, we're a little bit, we need to figure some stuff out and get a little more predictable before we we can, I'm comfortable making the promises that I would make for the valuation that we would want, you know? Be, before before we dive it more into the business and those decisions, while we're on the privacy topic, for brands that might be considering this, like what is it that you, Adam, as the founder, tells the brand so they have peace of mind that you know this is not like um, gonna affect their brand in any way whatsoever? And so so there's legal, and then there's actually a brand concern that they all also have. It's really with these more sophisticated brands, it used to be with the entry level, you know, when we were starting out as self-serve, it's like, how is this legal? How does it work? What do I send? Now with these Shopify guys who are bigger and like mid-market, it's how is it legal? Uh, will it hurt my deliverability? And will it hurt my actual brand, right? And like, because they care about that, right? So look, from a legal standpoint, it's just black and white. It, like, it's what I said about the social proof. Like, there is no way that these brands would be using it if what I was saying was untrue. It is legal. 
period, right? Um, there was a lawsuit a couple weeks ago, maybe it was like two months actually. It's a class action against an indirect competitor that more or less does what we do, but in a different way, called SafeOpt. Pete's Coffee and Everyman Jack were named on the lawsuit. That freaked people out. However, the lawsuit had nothing to do with the email part of our business. It had to do with cookie, it had to do with pixel retargeting. There are 100 pixel retargeting companies. They're all getting sued for this right now. It's like Hotjar, you know, Facebook's got 100 lawsuits against them, right? But because it was SafeOpt and they're a small niche company and because brands were named in the lawsuit, people are freaked out by this. The lawsuit is not about email. It's about, it's, it's not even a CCPA lawsuit because there's no right to private action with CCPA. It's, it's government only with CCPA. So it's gonna be the big companies first. They're not gonna get around to smaller brands for 10 years probably, right? It was, it's these ambulance chasers looking for a theory to sue around a wiretapping law, which is obscene. But the claim is that the consumers had no idea what was going on. There was no consent gathered. So like the direction all this shit is going is that if you actually put a cookie pro, you know, from one trust or whatever, the, the GDPR cookie consent thing at the bottom of your site, and you say like, we can give you language, something along the lines of, we will take anonymous identifiers and try to connect them to personally identified information, sometimes an email address, and we might try to mail you. If someone accepts that, there is absolutely no way that your brand is going to get a class action lawsuit against you for doing that. Because the only leg they have to stand on is that the consumer was unaware and did not consent. So if you have proof that consumers consented to that, like this, the only argument now with any of this privacy stuff, it's not whether or not you should be able to do it. It's whether or not proper consent is being collected for it. So I think that the end game of all of this state level stuff is just more banners and like more descriptive language. That's it. Nothing else is going to change. Yeah. And the cost of not doing that is the opportunity cost of not making the revenue dashboards like some of your customers have it. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a very, so like people who are concerned about showing up in a class action lawsuit, I don't think understand the way the world works. This was not, again, not to beat up on our boy Taylor Offer, but it wasn't Pete's Clothing who was in this lawsuit. It was Pete's Coffee. And it's a brand that everyone in America could see in a lawsuit and recognize. Anyone who's concerned about this is not at that point yet, <laughs> right? Like, so it's kind of like this other thing. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it's, it's look, it's not my place to make legal decisions for brands. I'm just like making the claim that brands that are a lot bigger than you are, are very comfortably doing this. And the way they are is they're collecting consent for it. And there's no debate about the legality of it. So back to your to, to the actual, will it affect my brand adversely? I always said, it's not a legal conversation, it's an ethical conversation. Or it's like whether or not you feel like this is a polite thing to do, or whether or not it's aligned with your brand ethos that you would do such a thing, right? Um, and Dr. Squatch was on stage with me at Grow LA in March, and I'm like, bro, what were your hesitations? He's like, you know, of course, it's a legal thing, but like, then he's like, 
Well, I thought there's no way it's not legal if they have these brands. And sure enough, ran it through our in-house counsel. It's legal. And he's like, the deliverability thing, we had Clavio audit our account as we started small and scaled up. And you can just tell, right? Like if you start small, you can just like, you can see that it's not adversely affecting you. And then he's like, on the brand front, we were like, okay, think about it from the consumer's perspective. If they just hit their promotions folder and you look at what's in there at any given time, if you just stuck an email from a website that you were just on, it's probably more interesting and relevant to you than anything else in there. I was like, I should have come up with that myself. <laughs> like, that's amazing. But like, I agree with that. Like, he's probably right. Like, you might have opted in for all of this stuff years ago or whatever. I don't know how it got in there. But like, something from a website that you were just on has to be one of the most relevant things in there. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think the other really interesting thing here is just like the power of email and how persistently powerful email continues to be as a channel. Um, especially as like everyone is thinking about, oh, I need to be doing this on TikTok. I need to be, you know, running ads. Like email is so powerful. People convert. You're they read it, they open it, um, and the attribution and everything is there. So um, I. I mean, it makes total sense why when you're able to get these emails for people who want to want to get them, you're seeing those numbers. My next question is um, going back to what you were saying about, you know, now it's on the brand and making the brand decision. Is this something we want to engage in and how do we go about doing it? What are some of the strategies that the brands are using when they're sending that email out? Like, what is that first cold email where there hasn't necessarily been like the defined opt in? Like, what are they saying and what are some of the strategies behind that? So this is... Um... This is gonna sound very strange, but like, the, like I, I used to own an ESP, like an email marketing SaaS app. Like this, the whole thing that we did was like deal with deliverability and you learn a lot about it. And like you, you run across some dodgy people in email. So like, I, so like I'm gonna, just gonna open the kimono on how spamming works, right? Um, When you are introducing cold emails into a bulk send, the relative importance of the content is very low. The relative importance of the aggregate negative engagement is incredibly high. So as a rule of thumb, if this makes sense, you're dealing with, you're always trying to like nurture this body of like 30 day engagers and what spammers will do is they will slowly add on cold emails, like 10% of their 30-day engagers per send into a bulk send that's very sort of generic. The complaints happen against that larger body of email. So it goes unnoticed by Gmail and Hotmail and like whatever. There's no way to fingerprint. There's no way to... Then the, engage, the positive engagers of that email get sent a welcome series. Afterwards, that seems totally counterintuitive but what's important is the fact that the negative engagement gets lost. And then you take the positive engagers of the cold emails out of that big send. Then you start doing very targeted whatever you were going to do. Thanks for coming by the site or like welcome to you know, whatever. But that, that is the way that you may. So like, by the way, we weren't telling people to do that until probably three months ago. And it was working fine. We were just saying, copy your welcome series. Like the emails are okay. It's like, 
the spam rate's a little higher than would otherwise be, but the way these ISPs look at it is it's, you know, of everything that went out that day, like what was the total open click unsubscribe? So it's like the unsubscribe of the welcome series might've been three or 4% and that's too high. And like the complaint rate might've been three out of a thousand or two out of a thousand instead of one out of a thousand and that's too high. If you were sending to that and that alone, it wouldn't work. It would, it would get blocked. But like, you know, that's an aggregate, like it's like 2% of people's email flow typically. So that's how it works. The only problem you run into is if for some reason, a CS person at Clavio is looking at your account, they're like, stop doing this. The engagement's dog shit. It's like, it's too bad. You know, it's wherever you're getting these leads from don't anymore. So the solution is just move the welcome series to behind the first newsletter, then it's untraceable, really. So that's that's how you do it safely every time. Like there's no, there's nothing that can, it's just math. Like emails, like in that way, in that regard, it's just math. Like yeah, I, you're I, washing I, these these emails. I, I love that. You're basically taking the emails, you're, you're just blending them into your traditional flows. Your traditional flows have like, you know, open rates that are totally acceptable. It gets lost in that and you get positive engagement and then you roll them right into your your email list just like you would had they uh, manually opted in because there's plenty of people who maybe hit your site and don't, you know, they click out of the pop-up or they don't enter their email in the footer or anything like that, but you're able to, you know, reclaim those and bring them into, you know, a top of funnel before you even knew you, like a, a higher top of funnel almost, right? Yeah, and just to be clear, it's like, 10 times more people than would fill out a form. It's like an unbelievable lift. Oh, 100%. I mean, we see it We see it on on, on my sites. Like I have a site with 100,000 hits a month on it. And, uh, you know, the conversion of like actual customers and email subscribers, like you're in the single digit percent, but like the amount of like total volume that we just don't know who they are and they hit and bounce is gone. So uh, that's my next question. Not Maybe not as <laughs> relevant to D2C, but... Just as a quick sidebar, do, does, do you guys serve other verticals as well? Or are there companies that serve like, you know, different verticals or is it strictly so, yeah. an e-commerce focus? We decided in sep in October of last year to only sell to these Shopify guys. And we're probably going to go up market into like sort of competing with Wonderkind. And then I, I want to do this like free product, which like does server side tracking for the conversion API and basically very simply it's like the conversion pixel on Facebook is not capturing and therefore unable to label sh uh, Safari conversions through a very simple third-party integration we can just send events for conversions for those people and the perception will be that the conversion rate will jump which I think is like that's just good to know for a lot of reasons. It will be a dopamine hit. And then I think it can be like a value ladder into, you know, we can do stuff in Clavio with server-side tracking, laying down first part, it's getting pretty technical, and then sort of work them up to our other stuff. So for now, it's like this e-com ecosystem we're focused on for this. We're actually creating, we're going to try to beta test this B2B product, which is like, it's like profiles of people on your high-intent B2B page. It's like a pricing page. And then... It's like people who are engaging in your social presence if you have one in the last 24 hours and show them, it'll show like how to just hit them back or whatever. And then there's this third party intent data market like Bombora, G2 Crowd, like whatever. 
like they're all really expensive and there's no aggregation of them and they're very unqualified and like this guy santosh who's my ceo he's like the b2b data god he built some info and apollo.io and stuff and he knows this b2b intent market like better than anybody so he thinks he can put together like a third party intent data product of verified people looking at your space that would be way better than what's out there and we could do it for like a thousand dollars a month so it would be like wildly disruptive because all these other companies are us based they have us based salespeople so they have to be 30 40 50k cv on the low end um so we're we're trying to get that product in motion you know that's kind of like a the next s curve idea like it it helps our business profile a lot to make something like that work because like there is such sensitivity in like shopify won't buy us like they have a different privacy ethos clavio doesn't want to touch it it's like we'll get a financial buyer maybe we'll get a revenue premium like there are b2b companies who would pay like billions of dollars for the b2b data side like it's like a totally different the acvs are so high it's like if you can you know it's like identity and intent in that market is really interesting and i mean guy I who like knows it in the back of his head and i've seen it firsthand from um a good friend of mine um nick walden who you know um i've seen him build in the data space recently he's just starting to take off the the thing with him when when he explains it i still you have to be so deep into that world to find the unique advantages and opportunities, but there are there, they are there because it's still so early in the data game. And um, I mean, this is even like pre AI stuff. It's going to get even crazier um, in terms of like finding loopholes because they exist. Um, it's just willing to be unconventional. And then again, also um, you have the advantage in, in being in the place of like having the mindset at the right time of having nothing to lose um, because you were profitable, um, you you grinded at it for 10 years, nothing else possibly worked. Um, so I'm curious on this guy, Shantos, um, it seems like he was a big sort of inflection point in your career. And when I started doing research on who he was, um, because I found them on, on the video that you had, um, yes, he is like a data god, B2B, you know, he was at Zoom Info and the thing that clicked with me is like, so for example, I have Pharrell Williams invest in my business, but it's like, you know, I, I got lucky there, um, but it's like something that I never thought would ever be possible, that, like someone like that I could work with someone like that. And so for most entrepreneurs, I'm like, how did you get someone like Shantos for, let's talk about who Shantos is, but like, you know, you, you tried everything that wasn't working. And it's like people from the outside can think, well, how, oh, the, a guy like that would never want to like help me out. Like, why is this guy taking the time out of his day to help me out? And it seems like you were in the weeds with him. So we'd love to yeah, hear like, more about so, that. So yeah, he's transitioning to full-time COO. He should be full-time COO by, I don't know, a month from now. He's winding down the engagement. He's, he's co-CEO of another company right now. Um, and everybody that works at our company feels that way every single day we're like we cannot believe this fucking guy chooses to spend his time working on this i mean we're paying him a lot a lot of equity a lot of cash but like still it's it's amazing because i wouldn't have had the confidence to like do like every situation we run into he has seen before he has navigated his way through like 
um it's 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 amazing um so how did i end up with him is how do you find the confidence to get someone like that to get interested so, and motivated so the story is like um the thing that set me looking for someone like him was i was about to sell this company and the guy walked uh, it was a lot of money the guy walked and i was like devastated and then dave jasper ai guy who i share an office with um he like connected me to, to the cro who's was he totally inspired me and was just like dude i had six employees at the time one salesperson eight million arr he's like this is unacceptable like hire three more salespeople. Like, I'm not telling you to do what we're doing, but like, you have to try harder than this, right? It's, you're, you're just, you're only hurting yourself. Um, and he's like, you have gotten far enough to where he's like, there was this thing that, that like, you know, if I, with my first company, if I wanted to build a sales organization, I would read a book on how to build a sales organization and then do it myself, right? And he's like, you and Dave have the same problem. Like, you think like that. He's like, you need to hire someone like me who knows how to do this and can just do it for you, right? You've earned that at this point. So I sort of set off looking for someone like that. I thought I kind of found one. I didn't. Um, I mean, I had him consult for a couple of months. It was like an enterprise sales leader kind of in the space and it just, it wasn't right. And then one of the problems with that guy was I thought the move was like up and hard. It wasn't like our move now is like kind of down. It's like not mid-market, it's like Shopify first. But like Warby Parker would, had been paying us like 50 grand a month for like two years. And we only have one of them. And like, you know, we'd get Harry's on the phone for a demo, nothing would happen, smile direct, nothing would happen. It's like, well, we need to figure out how to get more Warby Parkers because even if I had 10 of them, then my business is in like a totally different place. So I thought that's what the move was. I never understood the enterprise landscape for what we were doing. And even though this guy spent a couple months on it, I had no idea what he was going to actually do. I didn't know who we were competing with. I would go to like live ramps website. I know they can do this. They don't mention it, right? Like it's, it's just very strange. So I tried to get on the phone with people who could help me understand what the landscape was way up market. And I asked a private equity contact and she connected me with Santosh. And she's like, I'm not sure if this guy's going to know, but I think he's going to be really interested in what you're doing. Like this kind of exactly his wheelhouse. Like he loves the like, you know, 10 million, like no systems, no team, no nothing. And then like on the other end of it, you know, he leaves with, he, he loves, like he's disinterested at like a hundred million ARR, but like that is the most valuable, you know what I mean? But I didn't really know this going in. Um, and then I just had like an amazing conversation with this guy and the things that he had was telling me that he had done. I was like, holy shit. Like, Literally, I'm so, so I went home and I told my wife, I was like, I talked to this guy today and if I can get him to work with us, everything will have changed. What are some of the things he'd done what, that he told you at that moment? I mean, he just talked about some of his experiences with like Zoom Info and Apollo.io. Not even in a lot of detail because it was only a 30 minute conversation, but um, just kind of the way he was asking me questions it made me feel like he knew exactly what to do to make this a lot bigger. You know what I mean? Like that was kind of what it was like, and I was open to it as well, which I think he would tell you is the hardest problem is 
the, the, the executive team is not willing to do what it takes to like be a big company. Right. And I'm totally willing to do it. So I, I got him, I, I begged him to get another call and he's like, I'm not sure how I can help. I have another fucking job, like whatever. And I'm just like, dude, talk to me one more time. And I'm like, I just have this feeling that I don't even need you to like work full time or anything. Like if you just show me the direction I need to run in, like I'll run faster than anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just, I don't know what to do next, right? Like, like, and he's like, okay, well, he's like, quite frankly, a couple of minutes kind of boring. Like it'll be wrapped up with middle of next year sometime. Um, he's like, I'm at a point in my career where I'm not just going to work for you. Like I need to understand the business intimately well to join. But he's like, I will spend three hours a day on this for a year and then we'll know. And he's like, you know, whatever. We can do a certain amount of equity over four years. He's like, by the end of one year, you will have gotten most, you will like, the fundamentals will be in place for you to, the, the building blocks will be there for you to scale. And that is most of the value that I will provide. Product, creativity, whatever, like, he's like, I can do everything else, but like, so can everybody. He's like, this one thing, like you're stuck in a place to where after you get this, he's like, basically the point was, if it ends up not not working out after a year, like you're gonna win on this on this deal, right? Um, and then, sure enough, like two weeks in, he was spending eight hours a day on it, like, you know. And now he's got like seven direct reports, and like, you know, he's he's effectively been full time since October or something, and it's just been transformational. But like, it's also he's just like a really good human being, and like, sort of has these like Eastern values that I really embrace, like. Uh, you know, just mindfulness and he just thinks that, you know, he has his views of companies and the value, the, the, the roles that they serve in people's lives and like how it's just so much more than just a job. If you do it in the right way, like it can just like create this amazingly positive, like, uh, loop or whatever in, in everyone that's associated with it. And, and like, I had always had that, that belief ever since I started my first company, cause it was so different than wall street. Wall street was like, you just fucking took your pound of flesh and you went home. And the day you had enough flesh, you would stop going to work, right? Like, um, so yeah, it's just, it's it's a really serendipitous thing. And I'm actually with him writing a book, like he has so much wisdom, not just knowledge, like he has so much understanding about business and how it works. And like these like winner take all, you know, sort of dynamics and like the, like the thing that you said, it's like, 10 years in a row, you're banging your head against the wall. And then like, all of a sudden it all clicks and it goes vertical, right? Like he just gets the mindset and like the type of experiments you need to be doing all the time to like end up in that environment. And like, you have to keep doing them because this will plateau and you need another one or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, he just gets like velocity is one of his key things. It's so much more than just moving fast, right? Like velocity creates all sorts of positive energy in your company that like allows you to attract better recruits and make higher goals. And like, there's just, you know, 50 other second order consequences of velocity that are the reason it should be your number one core value. You know what I mean? Like, um, and it's just about all these different areas of business. He like really 
understands these subtleties. It's like one of his other things is like you shouldn't try to compete with revenue, right? You shouldn't optimize your business to make revenue. You should optimize your business to destroy competitors. To be like, like it shouldn't be like, oh, what's it should be like, how do we get to the end of the year having eliminated someone on the playing field? Right? Not how do we get to the end of the year like with our revenue 3x or whatever, you know? Like it's just, it's just these, these amazing ways of like behaving. I love that. That's, yeah, Ramon, I just wanted to yeah, jump go ahead. For, for one second there, Adam. Um, one of the other things that I saw you say, that I saw you post on LinkedIn that I think is like re related to this notion was kind of the idea that you said before uh, you had a certain conception about building businesses and now you're like, you know, go for it. And it's just, you may as well, if you're going to do it, you may as well build a big business yeah. instead of just building a normal business. So yeah. I'd love if you could just sh shed some light on like, you know, what your thinking was before, what your thinking is now, how you approach it and how you approach building big businesses. So like, I really, and by the way, like, so, so I really liked this idea. I didn't see a lot of people. I had this idea in my head. My co-founder, Diana Ross, used to work for this guy, Ross Paquette, who is his company, Mara Post. For like 10 years, he had been doing, he'd been stuck, but he'd been stuck at 30 million top line, 20 million bottom line, and he owned the whole thing. So like the guy got really, really rich, just cash flowing this business. And like, that was like, you know, I had a business that was a lifestyle business that was like fine for a single guy living in New York, but like, I've never heard of anything like that. I mean, that was, it's just, that was an unimaginable success to me. And like, he's, you know, as with anyone who is stuck and experienced success, like that sucks too, right? Like it's to not be growing, like it blows. Like you don't want to be making $20 million, like trying to make it bigger and then not working. Like you're, you're miserable. Cause like you almost have this feeling that you are God and like, you know, like, like that, why isn't this working? Right? Like it's, it's almost harder than when you're less successful in some ways. But, um, I always liked profitable businesses. I always, that was what I thought like the sort of dream was. But like that quote was kind of like, like I did when I first started my company after Wall Street, I've been reading like Tim Ferriss for our work week and like 37 Signals rework. And I was really sold in these small software companies. I was like, I'm oh, making a million dollars, live in Aspen, like what could be better, right? But like, it's not like, it's not like what I'm doing right now is like, like there was a period when I was not working a lot because I had someone else managing it entirely, which by the way, I could do now. Like I could not manage this. It's just like really fun to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. Um, but Steve Schwartzman in this book, uh, what it takes excellent book. He's the guy who created Blackstone, which is like the biggest private equity firm. It's publicly traded. He's, he's an incredible guy. He like, he recaps his advice in this book. And there's like 40 things he recommends. And number one is like, like it is not harder to create a big business than a small one. So you might as well create a big one because the rewards are so like the position that it puts you in at the end of creating it in the world is just so much more desirable for so many reasons, right? In some ways, small businesses are probably harder 
you know like i don't know like it's not yeah it's it and then sanchez goes even further he's like the bigger the vision the better the people you're going to get to work on it like the better the people you get to work on it the more likely it is to actually succeed you know um how did you get over the hump of the biggest transition there which is the one thing that really changes is people you know you're dealing with people problems you're managing yeah you're getting hires wrong like that's, yeah, that's the that's one biggest really difference tough. um between running a small business because like the operations of like like it becomes easier but yet you're just dealing with more people um so i'm curious like how how has that transition been in like you know every problem has a solution so um i'm sure you you've across that hurdle so like it, it sucks we definitely especially senior hires we've like gotten a lot of them wrong because like i think they're just really easy to get wrong it's like so hard to know the, the people who've gotten right like everybody almost everybody who's been around like of the top 10 people it's like seven of them started consulting for us which is just really interesting you know and then it, it sucked them in you know from their other shop or whatever um so yeah it blows it blows to fire people fortunately for me i hate doing it so like i'm not the one firing anymore for the most part because like i only have a couple direct reports um but yeah man i mean there's there's it's like that is now the problem that is you know it's like people problems are problem the problem and things related to people problems it's the biggest problem but i think it's just like that's what you sign up for it's 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 messy i mean that was like when santos walked us through what was going to happen he's like it's going to be messy like we're going to do it way too fast we'll probably end up hiring too much too many people like and then you take on since they're people you take on this whole layer of everything's going to be less efficient you know people are going to get unhappy annoyed you know some will love it some will hate it like that's just what what it is you know um and and I thought I didn't want that because I hadn't really had it before. And I thought it was like so nice to have this, you know, my idea was create a business like Ross's with like, I mean, I think he's got a hundred engineers in India, but like, you know, create a business like Ross's like 30 million top line or something, 20 million bottom line and have like, you know, 15, right? Like that sounds incredible even to me now, but um, it wouldn't, I don't know. There's something about being all in once you're all in that like is very enthralling. It's just like, uh, it's, it's the right way to live if you can, but like it wouldn't have made sense to do it for me until all of this, these things aligned in the fall of last year. And like the, the signal was so clear that we should be doing it, you know? So well, what I love, about it's a very your, interesting topic for exploration. You know, what, what I love about your approach is that you didn't you didn't have to sacrifice owning the business. Well, in, in the case of bringing in other partners, but um, it's not a question about like whether to race or not. Those are two very different things. And you 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 decided to go big, bootstrapping it with the money that the business had already validated itself and and making revenue. Um, you don't need to raise VC to say, I'm going to go big because that's where you can end up in the trap of like being on it for five years and not have any kind of outcome or even longer. Yeah. And one of the things that Santos said about these really successful companies is that they have a mentality as though they're founder led. 
And he's like, it allows them to do these type of crazy things that can lead to exponential outcomes. And he's like, so Apollo.io was another one that he joined when they were 5 million after eight years, they were totally stuck. And then they were trying to sell 15,000 ACV deals versus Zoom Info, 30,000 ACV, and it just wasn't working. And Satoshi was like, fuck it, $99, all you can eat. And it just like created this insane inbound. It's like if they built this thing that was like if three or more people from the same business domain bought it, they would hit the VP sales and then do like a mid-market, you know, 40K MSA, like whatever. Um, and uh, he's like, they were venture backed, but that go-to-market engine was so successful that it allowed them to still behave as though they were like founder, like the investors didn't care. So, you know what I mean? Like they were just, so, so they're still sort of doing things like that. And he's like, you know, for us, it's just make more money than you spend, right? Like, you know, having true financial freedom to do things that will eliminate your competitors rather than try to make more money to like please somebody else. Um, it's like such a great, it's, it's such a cool, I mean, if you can imagine, I never thought that way. And like this guy shows up at this, he's like, we should do an executive offsite. And like his presentation, it's like, I was like, man, like I've never been in a room with somebody this ambitious, but in this very non-greedy way, like he's just like, we're just gonna go destroy people. Like we're going to invent this space and we're gonna make it impossible to compete with us. And it's like, holy shit, like this is my company. Like how fucking cool is that? That like somebody like this who has all this experience doing this is like, I'm gonna help you make that. I'm like, I'm fucking in. Like whatever you need, like whatever you want, whatever you need, like it's go time. That's amazing. Uh, I, I love that mentality and and I'm super pumped for you guys as you keep growing. So as we kind of wrap up here, Adam, uh, the last question I had is just, you know, this year, clearly you guys are growing really fast. You've got your target on, um, expanding with different brands and, you know, continuing to move up market, but what else are you guys focused on, um, for, for the rest of the year from a product side, from a company side, like what, what are you, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. So like we want Santos is like, if you can get hundreds of thousands of users, it has like the effect of billion dollars a year of marketing budget for mid-market product. So we're trying to make like a free, very simple Shopify app and implementation, which I think would be great. Like literally just like free for everybody. Um, we want to do a B2B thing, which I think I mentioned. Um, so that's like very early experimentation phase. And then what keeps me up at night is just like, uh, you know, April and May were hard for us. Like they were hard for Gorgeous. They were hard for Triple Whale. They were hard for Yapo. Like there's some weird shit going on in D2C that like, I don't know, like if this thing doesn't start growing how it was growing in February and March again, it's the wrong size. Like it's like we have the wrong number of humans working on it, right? Like, which fucking sucks. Like that's going to blow. Uh, I will have just create gone from a glory like the greatest cash flow situation ever to just creating this like 20 million dollar a year churn machine where i'm not making any money <laughs> like, like great job guy so fortunately i'm making a weekly docuseries about it that everyone can follow and uh 
I am going to keep everybody up on it. But like right now, it doesn't feel great. Look, it didn't feel great the last six weeks. I think we're on to a lot of, there were external and internal reasons why uh, the slowdown happened. Some of the stuff we couldn't control, some of the stuff we can. The stuff we can, I think we've identified and like are doing some really smart stuff to get it moving again. And I think the nature of our product is like we get a real tailwind in the summer in advance of Black Friday because people are like, I want those fucking emails for Black Friday. It's that simple. Who would not put who would not put the script on in July, right? Like everybody would. So uh I think it'll I think it'll I'm anticipating a a, a big push in the summer. If not, you'll hear about it. <laughs> Love that. And where where can where can our listeners tune in and hear more? I know you said you mentioned you have a podcast and you're doing the whole build in public thing. So where can where yeah. can we find you? I'm doing most on LinkedIn, Retention Adam. I'm about to pick up my, my Twitter presence is okay. It's also Retention Adam, the handle. Um, but yeah, all of this stuff gets posted on my on my LinkedIn and Twitter. But yeah, the, the, show, the docuseries is called Billion Dollar Challenge. I think it's, it's very weird for me to talk about it because it comes across as such an egomaniacal thing to do. Like I was on a podcast with the Post Pilot guys yesterday and they were like, so dude, like you're making a show about yourself. <laughs> but for some reason it doesn't feel that way you know it's like uh, produce myself a, yeah they're doing a great job with the storytelling i think like the other episodes they've made that aren't out yet are fantastic um and yeah it's, there's it's this like you know a reality tv show about what it's what it's like to be in the middle of the shit show like is all this stuff's happening you know? you know, I I love that. Some of our favorite, even that we've had on the pod, I know in the CPG space, we had um, Jay from Midday Squares on and like they were one of the brands on the, you know, CPG and snack side that did that and really embraced it and people are loving it. So as a go to market strategy and something to do, I think, you know, not everyone's willing to do it, but the people that are, I think it's the best thing to do. I think it helps in a lot of ways. My whole thing was like recruiting investors ecosystem, like in that order. Even though I wasn't planning on raising money, investors was kind of like sort of big secondary possible exit at some point. And uh, yeah, man, I think it's raised a lot of awareness. Some of the feedback that I have gotten is that a lot of people know what who we are, but don't know what we do. So I'm like trying to get smarter about actually talking about the problems we solve for brands a little more in the content I'm making. But hey, it'd be a problem yeah, if nobody knew who you were or what you do. So that's a good place right. to be in. <laughs> Exactly. It's a good place to start. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate, I appreciate the good fortune that I have arrived in. Believe me, I just feel so thankful. Regardless of whether it's growing slower or faster than I thought it was going to, it's still an amazing position. Sweet. Well, thanks so much, Adam. Thanks for coming on the pod. We had a great time. Dude, thanks for having me. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.